Our reading for today is Esther 2, 5 through 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who are new uh, to our service, we are in the middle of a series of sermons I've been preaching on the Sacred Pathways. That's a book uh, by Gary Thomas. And so uh, we've been looking at different ways of um, loving and worshiping God. And so far we've looked at the naturalist pathway, the sensate, the traditionalist, the ascetic, the activist. And today we want to consider the caregiver pathway. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made the opportunity to hear your word, uh, to fellowship with your people, uh, to be present uh, at this time. So God, would you open our hearts and our minds that in the hearing of your word, uh, we may be transformed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So during uh, this current sermon series, I've been very thankful to God um, because God has been giving me uh, these unexpected opportunities to practice these various pathways. Uh, for example, you might recall after I preached the, on the uh, naturalist pathway, uh, I was able to visit Niagara Falls in the freezing weather and confirm once again that I am not a naturalist. Uh, but on the same day, I also got to visit a church and I was unexpectedly treated to these beautiful stained glass windows and experienced the sensate pathway, uh, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, I tend to lean toward the uh, ascetic and traditionalist pathways, in case you weren't sure. And, um, and so I don't really need much help with those. You know, I, I, I follow regular routines of uh, devotions. I like being alone at the library. I go to chapel and things like that. So I don't need much help with those. Um, as for the activist um, pathway, uh, I have to go serve on jury duty this week, so there's that. Um, so I feel like you know, God's really you know, giving me these unusual opportunities. Well, this week, uh, I felt like God really, really wanted me to understand this particular pathway. Uh, since last day, as some of you know, um, I've been practicing this pathway because uh, my wife has been struggling with severe vertigo 
Uh, and then my daughter caught the flu and then had this uh, severe migraine. And so basically for an entire week, more than a week, uh, I've been trying to um, take care of them. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that God made them sick so that I could, you know, do this. Um, only that it was an opportunity uh, that I had to practice this. And um, I ended up having to work uh, from home for a couple of days. Um, I had to, you know, bring them tea and snacks and uh, medicines and um, heating pads. And, you know, I'm going up and down the stairs like, you know, it seems like the whole day. And, um, you know, I had a, sometimes I had to help my wife walk to the bathroom because she was so dizzy she couldn't even do, do that. Um, and at one point I made a comment about like, oh, you know, like, I have to go up and down the stairs so many times. And they teased me by saying, you know, you're no nightingale. Can't you be more cheerful? And so apparently this is not a, a strong suit for me. Um, so I was thinking like, you know, God, I get it, you know. Um, can't you just let me practice this for one day? Why do I have to practice this like the whole week? That's a little, you know, it's a little over, right? It's a little too much. Um, well, it's not one of my strengths probably, but uh, I know that for many of you that this is a strong and natural pathway. Uh, in fact, many of you blessed us um, with your prayers. Uh, you brought over food this past week. Uh, I want to thank you because I really enjoy, I mean, my wife really appreciated the food that you brought over. And, uh, you know, you're natural caregivers. Like if you made food or you brought food over, it's a safe bet that you are uh, on this particular pathway. Uh, for me, when I think of this, this pathway, I think of nurses, uh, those who are in the uh, helping fields, people who work with disabled children, uh, people in uh, hospice care. Um, and for me, I think of uh, Mother Teresa, maybe as a prime sort of example of one who uh, worshipped and loved God uh, in this caregiving pathway. I mean, she cared for some of the most destitute and sick people in the world. And it's been said that she's been, she was able to do that because she was able to look behind the eyes of the poor and the sick, and she saw the image of God. She loved by taking care of others. She loved God by caring for others. And Now, of course, that's what we're all supposed to do, but she did it with such joy that it was never uh, a, a duty for her. Um, she wasn't trying to, you know, show off. She, it was, she wasn't a self-styled martyr or anything like that. It, it, she just found just tremendous joy somehow in the kind of work that many of us would find just incredibly challenging. Uh, for her, uh, it, was, it was worship. And it was reported uh, that when she would um, interview uh, people who would want to join her order or work with the poor, as she did, uh, she would ask them this question. Does this work give you joy? Does it give you joy? And if they said no, you know, maybe they wanted to do it for some other reasons, then she would tell them to go do something else. Um, now, people in this pathway, they, they hear God more clearly when they sit with the sick than maybe when they're alone in prayer. They find greater joy in serving a meal to the poor than in attending a worship service in a beautiful cathedral with thousands of people. They find doing acts of mercy not only a way of showing their love for God, but a way of actually loving God. And so this love, according to uh, the sociologist Robert Withnow in Acts of Compassion, it arises out of the sense of being loved by God. 
He says, to the extent that one can measure such things in empirical studies, the perception that one is receiving love from God does in fact seem to be associated with a greater willingness to care for others. In other words, as uh, 1 John says, we love because God loved us first. So that this ability to care for others arises, not, not out of some, uh, just some goodness or anything, but the fact that they, they understand or they, um, they believe that they are loved by God. So because they understand that they are loved, then they are able to love uh, others in return. God loved us first. This is the gospel. And the beginning of all of our understanding is in our thinking about God and our living. That God demonstrates his love for us in so many different ways, but most supremely, of course, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus in his life showed us what it is to care for others. Even when he was incredibly busy, even when he was exhausted and wanted to be alone and rest, he found somehow the strength to have compassion. He was always moved by compassion to care for others. And so for us, uh, we, we need to be rooted in that kind of love, and he calls us to do the same. So in one sense, you, know, you can say that maybe this is the only pathway. Of course we're supposed to love others. That's the, the supreme command. Jesus summarized the law, love God and love your neighbors. He told his disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He called on his disciples to even love their enemies and to care for the poor, the sick, the orphan, the widows, those in prison. Caring for others is our call. Even as we did it unto the least of these, we did it unto him. So it's our duty to care for others. None of us is excused from caring. Or, you know, we we cannot abandon this pathway and say, you know, I'm not going to do this one because this is not my, it doesn't fit me. Um, but But I think those who are on this particular pathway or for whom this pathway is a strong one have a particular joy uh, in serving others. They, they experience a particular kind of uh, joy uh, as they serve. That that is their form of worship of God. And today our reading, uh, is, I think, is an example of this. It comes from the book of Esther. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Esther. Um, but, you know, it is not a very popular book at all. Um, maybe the one time it was kind of popular uh, was among the Jews during uh, uh, World War II uh, when the Jews read this story and they saw in Hitler uh, the character of Haman. And they took hope that despite their condition, that like Haman, uh, Hitler and his regime uh, would one day fall. They took hope in that. But otherwise, you know, it's been a very much um, uh, underappreciated or ignored um, book the New Testament writers, for example, they, they never quote from the book of Esther. Uh, in Qumran, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found fragments of every book in the Old Testament except for Esther. It's the one book that they found no scraps. Martin Luther in the 16th century said, I'm so hostile to this book. He tends to um, exaggerate a bit, so we've got to take it with a grain of salt. I'm so hostile to this book that I wish it did not exist, for it Judaizes too much and is too much heathen perverseness. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to go quite that far, but it's, 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 again, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not taught very often in the church. Uh, in the Revised Common Lectionary, for example, over the three-year period of readings, uh, just one passage uh, appears in, in those readings. Um, scholars also have pointed out that it is the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. God seems to be absent. And interpreters continue to debate about how 
a book that never mentions the name of God should be read and uh, applied today. Some have tried to allegorize the book. Uh, Esther becomes the queen of heaven, and the banquet she prepares is anticipation of the messianic banquet in the future. Others have read it as political satire against the Persian Empire. One interesting suggestion relates to the origin story. The, the book is about how the uh, festival of Purim got started, and the festival requires a lot of partying. So according to the Talmud, one should drink enough so as not to be able to distinguish between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. That's a lot of drinking, right? Where you, where you can't distinguish between being cursed and blessed. Um, so they left out the name of God intentionally so that in all that reverie, you might accidentally misspeak the name of God as you're reading the book of Esther. And so that's one explanation of why they left the, um, the name out. That's a somewhat dubious um, interpretation, I think. But in any case, uh, for us, you know, the, the story uh, for us today, uh, I want to just focus on this idea of um, caregiving. Uh, in, the, in our case, um, the story... Uh, just to put it in some background, it's situated during the period of the exile when the uh, Jews are uh, living in uh, Babylon and Persia. Uh, some of them have gone back to uh, Jerusalem. They've gone back to, to rebuild the temple and so on. But many people are still staying uh, there in exile. Uh, so the story is situated uh, in the 5th century B.C. Uh, in the capital city of Susa. And in chapter 1, just to give you just a quick summary, in chapter 1, the king, uh, in a moment of drunken stupidity, dismisses his queen. And so as chapter 2 opens, he's regretting that decision. And so he agrees to the plans of his advisors to find a replacement queen by gathering all the beautiful young women in the land. Uh, This should not be confused uh, as a kind of an innocent beauty contest that we might have today or, you know... A reality show like, like The Bachelor or something like that. Uh, this, is, this is the empire owning your life. Beautiful young women were rounded up involuntarily for a night with the king, basically. And uh, that, that's what the empire can do. Uh, they can conscript young men to serve in the military. They can uh, turn men into eunuchs to serve in the harem. So this is, this is empire just, just controlling your life. And so Esther's story is really one about weakness and vulnerability in contrast to the power of the Persian Empire. She's not only in exile, but we find out she's an orphan. She's taken forcibly into the king's harem. And throughout chapter 2 and other parts of this, uh, the, uh, the book, passive tenses are used in regard to Esther to emphasize her powerlessness. Right? She, she doesn't get to do a lot of uh, actions. Things are done to her or against her. And she has very little control over the circumstances of her life. Life is regulated by forces beyond her control. And yet we discover that even in those circumstances, she is able to take back some control to make the best of an awful situation and of the limited choices that are available to her. But that's a different sermon. Uh, I want to today just talk about Mordecai. Beginning with verse 5 and 6, we get a little information about him. We discover, for example, that he has a name, at, uh, Mordecai, which is named after the Babylonian god Marduk. Uh, this doesn't mean that he worships these uh, gods, only that he's adapted into the culture. He's using a Persian name, 
much like uh, many of us uh, would use an English name, like, like David, for example. Um, he's also identified as a son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. The list suggests that he may be a third generation in exile. But also, more importantly, I think, Kish, a Benjaminite, uh, is a reference to King Saul, that he may be a part of King Saul's genealogy and links him to failed royalty, to failed kingship. Um, and then we are further told that he has been, his family had been exiled from Jerusalem with the group of exiles that was exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. In one sentence, four times, this word exile uh, is repeated to, to remind us that this is, this is his life, that being in exile, um, that's his reality. And so then we see now uh, he is someone who's born in a foreign land to uh, immigrant grandparents, probably, uh, one who has adapted into the predominant secular culture, but one whose identity is still clearly and strongly rooted in his faith community. And beginning with verse 7, now we see what he does and how he lives out uh, as, uh, as a person of faith, as a person who provides care. Verse 7, he was bringing up Esther, for she had neither father nor mother. Uh, as you know, the care of orphans is a repeated command in the Bible. This is something that we are called to, to care for orphans. Uh, Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Bring justice to the fatherless. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. The psalmist says of God that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. God settles the solitary in a home. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless. So, so we, we see this recurring theme that God is one who cares for the orphans and that the people of God are to care for orphans. And so Mordecai, in carrying out uh, this, this care for Esther, is in obedience to this faith tradition. He, he's, he's a Jew and he's living out his faith by caring for an orphan. And there's a really interesting word here. It says that he was bringing up Esther. That word bringing up is a rare uh, word choice. It appears in Ruth 4.16, where it says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. It's that same word, bringing up. It's that word, nurse. And then in Numbers 11.12, Moses complains to God, and he says, Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child. Again, that same word, uh, nurse. Uh, it's this idea of, I mean, it's, it's the idea of nursing, right? Of, of breastfeeding. That's the idea of what it means to bring up someone. And so Mordecai, uh, metaphorically, brought her up. He nursed her. It, it shows this incredible compassion and care. It's not just like he just kind of like, you know, did the minimum uh, that was necessary to bring her up. He really uh, cared for her. You know, it's a kind of care that maybe we ordinarily would associate with moms and, and uh, women. 
But here's, here's Mordecai uh, who's doing that. As far as we know, you know, he's not married. You know, he doesn't have kids of his own. Um, just, just a bachelor. Maybe it interferes with his a bachelor life to, to take care of this, this young girl. Uh, but he does it. It's not just duty. Right? This, this word suggests that there's a deep, deep care uh, that he's providing for Esther. Goes on to say that he was bringing up Esther, the daughter of his uncle, when her father and mother died, and Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Um, maybe it's the influence of watching too much of VeggieTales when my kids were younger, but I, I've always sort of had this image of Mordecai as this kind of like older guy, like an old guy, and then like um, Esther would be this sort of young, young teenager. Uh, th- that's probable. That's probable because it says he took her as his own daughter, so there, there should be a good age gap there. But you see that it says that she's the daughter of his uncle, which means that they were first cousins. So they're the same generation. So there might have been some age gap, but I want you to know that they're of the same generation in their family. And so it's, it, it's not something that would have been natural for him to adopt her, right? Because they're in the same generation. Like his father or someone else would have been a more likely choice to do that. So we don't know when Esther's parents died. We don't know how old she was or how old she is. Um, but when she is orphaned, he takes the additional step of essentially adopting her. He adopts her. Now, this is very rare because in the, in the Old Testament, there, there's no regulations, there's no command to adopt. Care for orphans, yes, but there's nothing about um, adoption. It does not appear. Um, although we do think there were at least three people in the Old Testament who were adopted. There's Esther, uh, Moses, of course, adopted by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and then another guy uh, named Genubeth, which no one's ever heard of, but he appears to have been adopted as well. Um, so again, there, there isn't, we don't know about adoption very much uh, in the Old Testament, and we don't know the laws in Egypt and Persia and, and what all of that means. Um, and so this is really kind of unusual. It really is. And we're not given any reason for why he did this, other than that he was bringing her up, that he was caring for her. He was not responsible for her legally. Uh, he didn't have the kind of legal obligations that would have forced him to do this. Um, but he does it, right? And I think that, again, that speaks very much to, to his character. Now, adoption per se is rare, but the idea of adoption is an important and recurring theme in Scripture. As a metaphor, God often speaks of his people as his children. Um, Israel is his child, that he is the father of Israel, whom he loves as a son. He tells Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Um, so this idea of family uh, and being uh, connected that way is, is, is common, of course. Of David's descendants, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And so belonging to God and to God's family is there. Uh, but the ideal of adoption then gets developed in the New Testament. Um, and I think it, was, it developed in part because unlike the uh, Israelites and, and Egyptians and um, the Greeks and the Romans, they had very uh, strong uh, adoption rules. They, took, they had all kinds of ceremonies. And so it was something that was a part of those cultures. And so uh, Paul, when he's writing, is able to talk about adoption because people understood that this was part of their, their culture. And so Paul writes, for example, in Ephesians, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Our salvation is described in terms of adoption. 
In Romans 8, Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We have new position and new status in being adopted into the family of God. And so this language of adoption and of children speaks of this, this deep intimacy, this deep connection that God has for us. And so Mordecai does for Esther what God does for Israel and for us in showing love and compassion. I mean, I think he's really modeling here the loving kindness of God in the way he has not only cared and brought up Esther, but in taking her on as his own daughter. And then in verse 10, it says that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So in addition to nursing her and adopting her, Mordecai provided her guidance and protection. Uh, She's in a dangerous, precarious position. We find out later in the story that uh, Haman uh, plans to wipe out the Jews. And so he's trying to protect her from potential danger by keeping her race, her family identification hidden. Uh, this, is, this is familiar strategy. People change their names uh, today to hide their racial and ethnic backgrounds uh, because cultures can discriminate against particular uh, ethnic groups. Uh, sometimes it's blatant and institu- institutionalized prejudice, and sometimes it's, it's more subtle. Um, like Mordecai, Esther also has adopted a Persian name. She does not use her Jewish name. Uh, her name is Hadessa, but no one remembers her uh, by her Jewish name. Uh, that's, it's, it's a form of concealment. It's a form of trying to uh, get along or to be assimilated into the dominant culture. Uh, I remember, you know, um, uh, years and years ago when I was in Japan, uh, meeting with some Koreans uh, who were uh, second, third generation uh, Korean Japanese, and how they changed their names uh, to Japanese last names to keep their uh, Korean ethnicity hidden because they knew that if they had a Korean last name, uh, they would face all kinds of uh, discrimination uh, in society. Um, and people, change, people do this all the time. Uh, in this country too, right? Um, depending on what period of history you're looking at, uh, depending on which ethnic group was being you know, uh, biased against, uh, people would change their last name to, to get along, to, to fit in. Uh, today, uh, I, know, I have friends who change their uh, names so that it doesn't sound um, Korean or Asian, so that they would have better chances for promotion or for getting their kids into college because you know, uh, of the uh, biases that are uh, uh, in those, um, when they're looking at names, you know, the, the kind of prejudices that, that come in. So um, given that women were rounded up, and what we discover about uh, Haman later, there is good reason to keep her identity hidden. Um, in fact, the name Esther is interesting because uh, in Hebrew, if you take the letters, you know, um, it sounds like I hide. Um, so there's a kind of a pun uh, in her name as well. So she's an exile. She's in a foreign land. She's doubly exiled now into this harem. Um, but she trusts Mordecai's wisdom. She listens to him because he has taken care of her. And so when he says to, you know, keep your identity hidden for now, she obeys. And then verse 11, every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Uh, I really love this verse. Um, This is exactly what you would expect a worried father to do, right? When Esther goes into the palace, 
He comes to visit her every day. Uh, th- this, this is not permission for you parents to visit your kids when they go off to college or when they're married. That's not, okay? Um, he's not allowed into the harem, but he comes every day to see how she's doing. She was not a burden to be tossed as soon as possible. You know, he's not thinking, oh, finally I can get rid of her, right? She's no longer my responsibility. He continues to care for her. You know, like when you adopt someone into your life, you know, literally or, or figuratively, uh, th- th- this attachment, it doesn't end. It doesn't end. You know, your, your life gets permanently reorganized. And so we don't want to interpret his actions as it being overly protective um, because Esther was in real danger. Notice that he comes to learn how Esther was, that is, he was asking about her shalom, how she, her, her, um, her well-being, and he wants to know what was happening to her. You see? He, he knows that things are being done to her, that, she, that she's not free, that she doesn't have control over her life in this situation. And so he wants to find out what's going on to see if there's a way that he could maybe protect her or help her. He probably has people on the inside who are communicating information uh, to him, and she's probably passing out information to him as well. And so he, he did everything that he could to stay in touch with her, to keep communication available, and to be near her as much as possible. And that's what caregivers do, to stay with you. Uh, that's what friends or any good parent does. So I, I think Mordecai is, is really just a good example for us, uh, not just as a caregiver, but I, w- I want to say even that as someone who is living in a foreign and secular culture that is threatening his faith identity. Remember, God's name never appears in this book. But not only that, there's very little of what we might call sort of um, obvious or traditional piety, right? No one goes to temple. No one prays, really. Um, no one rests on the Sabbath. Uh, they seem to be eating just regular foods. Um, other than a period of fasting, there are no markers of what we would think of as traditional Jewish piety. Instead, what we have is someone who is identified very strongly and primarily as a person of faith, a Jew, but he demonstrates that faith, or what that means to be a Jew, by caring for someone who's in a vulnerable position. So even though there are no overt acts of religious piety, faith and faithfulness are not absent. Even though the name of God is absent, God is not absent. God's presence is experienced obliquely, in these kinds of coincidences at critical junctures in the story. And, and I think that's an important uh, lesson for us. You know, that God is probably not going to uh, reveal himself to you in some, you know, uh, some ostentatiously spectacular display of miraculous power. Um, but if we pay attention, if we pay attention, if we remain faithful, we can see the hidden power of God every day whether in the, in the majesty of nature, in the peace of silence, or in the opportunities of service that are presented to us every day. That we can see God behind all of these opportunities. God remains in the background, so to speak, but God's providence is very much evident 
Again and again, we see God's hidden orchestrations, God's choreography, as God delivers Mordecai and the people of God uh, throughout the story of Esther. And Mordecai, on his part, demonstrates his faith that God would deliver his people, and so he himself acts with faithfulness and compassion, not only toward Esther, but to all the people that he meets. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I think Mordecai, because he loved, because he cared for Esther, he was reassured that he was in God's presence. And we can have the same assurance when we do that. When we practice loving others, we have the sense of, we know that we have passed out of death into life if we have this love. So, um, you know, we've been talking about different pathways. And I think it's really important to remember this because there are different ways to live out your faith in the culture. If we compare, for example, Mordecai's stories with the story of Daniel, who was also in exile, right? They took two entirely different approaches. For Daniel, he was very much, uh, he, he stood out as a Jew. He prayed even when the king's edict said, you should not pray to God. Uh, he fasted, you know, he kept his Jewish name. He stuck to and insisted on a kosher diet, Right? So he was very much like, I'm going to be very much, you know, uh, an overt Jew. And you can do, you can punish me you want, but that's, that's how I'm going to do it. He, he, he wasn't going to compromise on any of those things. Um, but Mordecai takes an entirely different approach, right? He, he assimilates into the culture. He takes on the name, right? There's no sort of overt practices of his faith. I think there is more than one way to be faithful to God in our culture. As an outsider, as an exile, we see someone here now, Mordecai, who's adapted into the surroundings. He takes on some of the local customs. He's politically savvy. He's figuring out a different way of being faithful than, say, someone like Daniel. He may not appear outwardly pious, right? Like, we don't see him reading the Bible or anything like that. But by his actions... By what he does, right? He shows us what it is to be faithful, to be courageous, to be loving, and especially to be compassionate. Here is what faith also looks like. It's not just found by going to worship services. It's demonstrated in caring for an orphan. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. That's what James says. This is pure and undefiled religion. He doesn't mention, you know, the things that we might traditionally associate with a life of faith. He says it's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's what Mordecai did. Um, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Um, It's an amazing story, um, about an unconventional family, right? You have a bachelor, you have an orphan who come together, they care for one another uh, under very trying circumstances. They don't fit in to uh, the, the categories of family and life uh, in this uh, society. But it's also the story of, of every family and of every parent and child, right? You never stop worrying, even if your child ends up in the palace, or maybe especially if they end up in the palace. 
They demonstrate by their care for one another that they are faithful. What do you do when you have no political power and the empire has rights over your life? You demonstrate faithfulness in caring for one another. That's one way. That's one way of being faithful. Uh, reminds me um, of you know, what some of our missionary partners in North Korea and Kyrgyzstan, what, what they've told me over the years, that you know, they can't do a kind of uh, overt and open evangelism because of the, the, the laws of their countries. But they always say that they can have a powerful witness by being a Christian presence in those countries. That even though they can't evangelize outwardly, just by their faithfulness, just by the way they love one another, the way they carry out their business, the way they interact with others, that that speaks very, very powerfully and that that is a way of living out their faith. Right? When people see that they're compassionate, that is a testimony. And we have that same opportunity uh, along with all of these other pathways to demonstrate our faith uh, by caring for one another. And here's the good news. Jesus once asked, who are my mother and my brothers? And he answered his own question, whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. And I would correct Jesus. He is my adopted brother and adopted sister and adopted mother. That's what Mordecai did. To love one another. To care for orphans. And maybe he doesn't realize it, but just as he adopted Esther into his family, God adopted him into his family. And that's the hope we have. That's the hope we have. John 1.12 But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, the adopted children of God, who were born not of blood, right, not biological, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Speaking about adoption. And that is who we are. That is who we are. And so confident as the beloved and adopted children of God, I want to encourage you this week to especially look for ways to care for one another. Let's pray together. God, we're um, thankful for um, the example of Mordecai today and just the way that he... he, um, extended such care uh, for someone uh, who was vulnerable. Um, God, we know that there are people in our lives, um, maybe people in our immediate families, um, who, could use, who could use some care. Some of us, Lord, I know um, already are caring for uh, people who are sick, Uh, or even just taking care of young children. God, help us to increase our compassion. Help us to be more rooted in you so that your compassion might overflow. Keep our eyes open for those opportunities you set before us so that in those moments we may know you are there Help us to be faithful in loving one another.
In Christ's name we pray.